Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This episode is with a man we consider one of the most remarkable people we have met in our life, our dear friend, Dan Butner. Dan's life experiences cannot be described in one article, one book, or one show. In fact, if you had to write Dan's life story, it would sound like different stories from a hero's journey. But when you step back, you will see a common theme running through all of these stories. The common thread appears to be one of courage, compassion, and the will to make a difference. We believe we were able to capture the essence of his journey in our conversation and what he hopes to do for humanity and the world. Join us as we explore the mind of a super change maker, a true warrior of light. We are so excited to have you here. We've known you for a while. We truly admire what you've done, and uh, we are beginning to know you more and more every time we read something, we see you, uh, the amazing life that you've lived. We've known you since 2005. That's right. That's right. We were both back from another crazy adventure in Afghanistan with the HHS and and all of the people that were reconstructing the healthcare there. And we decided to restart our neurology life in UCSD, which was at the time the number one neuroscience program. And we read your article and literally you changed our life. You really did. Um, we, we're not exaggerating that fact. We were at UCSD and we found out. Yeah, you're responsible, good or bad. If anything bad uh, happens, uh, yeah. That, that, that's nice. I, I think the article you're talking about was the uh, cover story for National Geographic called The Secrets of Long Life. The yeah. idea was to reverse engineer longevity. And, and I'll tell you, I spent 20 years as an explorer, always dreamed of writing a, just a story for National Geographic and uh, suggested this idea of finding areas where people live statistically longest and then find the common denominators that explain that longevity. And I wrote the article. Of course, you never know, even if you write the article, if it'll be accepted, if it'll make it through the gauntlet of, of threats that can kill an article. It actually became a cover, and it was the third best-selling cover in National Geographic's history, <laughs> my very first one. But And that's not because of any merits that I possess as a writer. I think it's because it was the right idea at the right time. There are 77 million baby boomers uh, we have at the time and now millennials, and, and we're redefining aging. Our parents, they on average were dying just a few years after they retired, and now we live in a generation where you can live 20, 30, 40 years after retirement. So people were looking for not only how to get the most years out of life, but the most life out of those years. And rather than make it up or look for the answer in a Petri dish, I went to find cultures that have achieved the outcome we want, who living longer, who are statistically happiest. They're avoiding heart disease. They're avoiding cancer. And, and to the point of this podcast, remarkably, they're also avoiding dementia. Yeah, they're staying sharp until the very end. And that's really really what we want. We want all of our marbles. Exactly. Uh, That's fascinating. On our deathbed. I think that it wasn't luck. This is what I'm getting to is I think there's a personality type that takes enough risks and is opportunistic minded enough that 
you know, one of those will hit. And, and your background speaks to that. It's oh, just okay. absolutely bewildering through, through, or it kills through, through you. Or it kills you, yes, yes. <laughs> well, when we were at Plantstock this year, Rip Russellson called you the most interesting man in the world. And, you know, that's quite legitimate and for great reasons. I mean, you, you've always been an explorer. And, you know, I was reading about your life a little bit before this interview. You hold three Guinness records for transcontinental cycling. And, you know, you started back in 1989 with your brother. You did the Americas Trek where you had to cycle about, what, 15,500 miles, more than very that? Good, yeah, very good uh, research there. From, from Alaska to Argentina, oh my goodness. And then in the 1990s, or in 1990, you did the Soviet track, and you covered about 12,888 miles. And in 92, again with your brother, you cycled all the way from Tunisia to South Africa. And you covered more than 11,000 miles over eight months. And then on top of that, you're an author of several books. You're an Emmy Award winner, producer for a documentary. You've worked on the Maya Quest. You followed Marco Polo's trail on the Silk Road. I mean, (laughs) that's exciting. Exciting is a small word to capture all of that. And, you know, Dean and I. We love you and we're super impressed, but we want to know what makes you tick. Yeah, what I mean, happened? at the core, there's this sense of urgency. It's not anxiety. It's a sense of urgency that keeps somebody moving that much. Where did it start? In Minnesota? Where, I mean, what was it? Yeah, I had a father who worked for the Forest Service. And when we were kids, instead of going to Disney World or staycations, he would take us into the north woods at the, on the border of Canada and we would paddle under the wilderness for weeks at a time and learn survival and learn how to take care of ourselves. I think it was good for pushing up our threshold of pain. We learned the self-confidence of knowing that we could be in the wood and on our own and be all right. And also, I think it still us this sense of adventure. I mean, you listed that very impressive list of accomplishments and, you know, it may sound impressive, but I'm not driven by what I think drives a lot of other people. I think what drives a lot of other people is a need for accomplishment. Most of the, or if not all of those, I am simply really interested in it. Interested to the point of obsession. And um, as people who know me will tell you that when I get a project, I talk about it all day and all night. My social network starts to morph. I start to hang out with the people who are in that area. So when I was biking across Africa, I was hanging out with Africa files. When I was trying to find out why the ancient Maya civilization collapsed with these Maya, I made a whole network of archaeologist friends. And a lot of them are still friends, but, but you just become so obsessed with it. And you, so you become kind of an expert on each of these topics. It just stacks the deck in favor of being successful with it. And also completing what you set out to do. I, I definitely think so. You, curiosity is the engine. Curiosity is the propellant. Yeah. It is. It is a curiosity and, and a fearlessness that I think those tracks in the woods and, and Minnesota or, you know, that created this confidence that, you know, in the middle of nowhere, I can survive. I just have well, to go there. You know, it actually isn't fearlessness. It's more like strategic survival. <laughs> I, I think um, a true explorer is not a risk taker. A true explorer's done her homework or his homework and they've mitigated risk. So, you know, we, we biked across the Sahara Desert. 
which on the face of it's probably a pretty dangerous thing, but we calculated, we knew where all the wells were. We had newly demilitarized GPS. We had CIA maps that we knew how to read. We had twice as much water as we needed to get to the next well. So even though I think for the unprepared person, it's almost certain death, for my team, we were ready. So it's, uh, I'm actually a very fearful guy. And it's probably that fearfulness that I'm sitting here talking to you right now at age 59 and, you know, don't have an interesting obituary uh, (laughs) somewhere 10 years ago. No, I I understand. No, it is a strategic approach to life, uh, definitely. And and it's the curiosity that pulls you along. When we read the article in 2005, we had just started our work in 2006. We started our work in UCSD with Leon Thal, who's the main person involved uh, leading the effort with dementia and dementia research. And we were getting exhausted. I mean, I did two years at NIH and then to uh, experimental therapeutics. And we were getting exhausted with these clinical trial after clinical trial, this myopic, singular approach to things. And you opened up the door. And then actually, we started searching for people that were doing similar kind of things, like, you know, uh, Dr. Philip Jeste, who was doing uh, community research, and uh, Elizabeth Barrett Connor, who did the uh, Rancho Bernardo study. And our mentors were saying, where are you going with this? And eventually, it took us to Loma Linda. Yes, it did. It did. It was uh, fortuitous to know that Loma Linda was only 60 miles away, and, and that's how we started our quest. You know, I went into preventive medicine and neurology because of that, because we wanted to coin the term preventive neurology to study brain health and prevention in general. So, you know, you kind of set us on that path. And I recall from your first article where you, you know, did research on longevity spots, and you mentioned Loma Linda, Okinawa, and Sardinia. And then you started your whole Blue Zones project from then on, and you created living models around the world. And your first one was in beach cities, in Redondo, Hermosa, and Manhattan Beach. And we've actually moved to Redondo Beach because, you know, this is a phenomenal area to live, first of all. And just this whole application of the Blue Zones concept in a community is is incredible. Tell us about your experience about that. After writing... Blue Zones, it became a popular book. I go on these TV shows, Dr. Oz, Oprah, Good Morning America, and the green rooms, the preparation rooms are filled with other authors who've written other diet books, or I shouldn't say other diet books, but diet books or transformation books. And it was just a constant churn. You could fill libraries with this sort of self-help book. And I think I counted 256 diets that are um, the NIH actually recognizes as a diet. Everything from the cookie diet to the paleo to keto to DASH to Ornish. But I didn't want this idea to simply fizzle away. I wanted to see if it would work. And I talked AARP into funding the idea of manufacturing a blue zone. And I got support from the University of Minnesota. And I, I was living in Minneapolis at the time. And I knew a few things. If you want to transform a city, which is what Blue Zone sets out to do, the Blue Zone projects, they set out not to change everybody's behavior, but to change the environment so the healthy choice is the easy choice. I was going to need a staff of people. And so it couldn't be far away. So we auditioned five cities within about an hour radius of the Twin Cities. We knew we wanted a city of about 20,000 people. 
And we actually landed on Elbert Lee, Minnesota. That was our first, that was before the beach cities. I see. Yes. And it was, a, it was, a, a, we had a city that said, we'll be your Petri dish. Try it. And the idea here was to simply change the defaults and shape the environment so that you could, in a sense, engineer people's decisions to be slightly better throughout the day. In restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, schools, churches, with city policy, and in, and in people's homes. And when you go at that idea with the maniacal focus and great experts, you would be shocked at what a difference you can make. Just not a silver bullet, silver buckshot of just little things that you unleash in a population, let long-term changes to the environment and let them work for two or three years. And uh, it is, if it were a drug, it would be a multi-billion dollar blockbuster drug. Absolutely. But uh, as you guys well know, and you guys are warriors in this area and, and um, in prevention, the healthcare system in this country does not really pay for health. It pays for sickness, yeah. mitigation or sickness reversal. Nobody makes money if you stay healthy. So this idea of keeping people healthy in the first place has been a, a, an adventure in both um, execution, but also in getting it paid for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the challenge. The right. challenge is that there's no financial, well, not a proper and consistent financial model to sustain prevention. Uh, we were talking to uh, Dr. Katz the other day, it's, it's a 80-20. 20% is chronic care that you have to do, but 80% can prevent it. And prevention is, you know, in the communities and homes and work. And yet the funding does not even come close to reflecting that need. That's true. And if only people go to these places that you went to, I mean, you know, in Korea, you talk about that, we talk about, although you're telling us recently that all those numbers are changing since 1970, just by westernization of those places. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you found in, in those places in the first place, and then maybe the change, we call it the paradox, the uh, affluence paradox. What are you seeing, and how are you seeing this change taking place? So the idea with Blue Zones was to find statistically longest-lived areas, pockets of places, and we found them longest-lived women in Okinawa, longest-lived men in Sardinia, island of Korea, where there's very little or no dementia. People live about eight years longer. Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, where the middle-aged mortality is the lowest in the world. And then in Loma Linda, highest concentration of Seventh-day Adventists in the world. And Adventists are living a half a dozen or so years longer than their North American counterpart. So, you know, the idea was to capture these populations at a point in time and see what they were eating. This next book coming out in December, Blue Zone Kitchen, the idea was to capture the recipes. But at the time, it was to capture their, their whole lifestyle and then share it with Americans. So the first book, Blue Zones, was how we found these places and the lessons they teach us about living longer. Blue Zone Solution, which was the next book, that book was about how you put these ideas in place for long enough so you don't get sick, because as you guys well know, when it comes to brain health or longevity, there's no short-term fix. Mm -hmm. There's no pill you're going to take today, and your brain's going to be sharp for the next 60 years. It's about avoiding the wrong things and proactively doing the right things 
for not just a few years, but for decades or a lifetime. So these blue zone, people in these blue zones, they're eating a plant-based diet. They're moving every 20 minutes. They're socially connected. They're sleeping well. They know their sense of purpose, not because of any conscious activity on their part, not because they're going to buck up and get disciplined and get on a program and stick with the program. It's because they live in an environment that makes these things easy. Then, 1970, 1980, 1990, along comes the standard American diet and globalization. And it hits these places like a destructive tsunami. Here you have these beautiful rhythms of life, this wonderful Blue Zones food, peasant food, hundreds of years of trial and error to make it taste delicious, cheap, healthy. You know, a lot of uh, Blue Zones foods are beans and greens and grains and nuts and, and the secret sauce of making all that taste great. And then, bam, here comes Kentucky Fried Chicken and Burger King, and chips, and sodas, and some affluence comes to your point, Dean, and all of a sudden, meat, which was a celebratory food, and they made it, maybe had it once or twice a week tops, is all of a sudden cheap, and they get, they're eating it every day. Sodas become ubiquitous. Coca-Cola, you see it all, they're drinking that every day, and you see the longest of cultures in the world plummet over the next decades or so. And, and I have a real fear for blue zones. They're, they're reversing their incredible health. It's sad to see them go. But this underscores the key insight. And the key insight is this. You are never going to get a population of people to change their behaviors long enough to make a difference. You'll get single digit percentages. You'll get, you know, you guys are super healthy and disciplined. I, I know you're both vegans. You'll get single digit percentages to know the right things to do. And, you know, part of the challenge is even with all the confusion out there is to know the right thing to do it and then to do it long enough. You're never going to get a population to do it. So the key, once again, is uh, shaping that environment so the healthy choice is the easy choice. 100% agree mm -hmm. with that. That's I mean, such an incredibly important point. You've taken public health to the next level. I mean, our background is public health, our, our degrees, and it's all about access. Yes, access. In real estate, everything is about location. Public health is access, 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 access to information, access to resources. But even there, it's usually a contrived model. All of a sudden, they bring some people to give lectures or some pamphlets. Or No, what you're talking about is it has to be almost a background existence of these things. So your choice, your default choice is the healthier choice. And that's because the way the brain works, you know, we, this little three pound organ consumes 25% of the energy at its baseline non-thinking state. And as a, you know, you take evolution, it didn't want to spend a lot of energy. It just wanted to spend energy to survive. And, and I'm not going to get into it here, but that speaks to all the diet confusion. People think that, oh, this diet is good because short-term it's effective. Well, short-term is what evolution was working for, enough to, for you to run away from the tiger, mate, and die. Not always in that order, but you know that was the, the whole goal. And now we're actually engineering to live longer, so it's not evolutionary. So you're absolutely on the right track. Make health a default background, then it's going to happen. And I think you're one of the first people we know I mean, other people have spoken about it in small measures, 
to not only speak about it in a very systematic way, but to actually apply it at the community level and then to be successful at it. So if anybody should get public health funding, and now I'm doing some advertising for you. Thank you. I really mean it. I really mean it because we live this. I mean, we yeah. see it between the difference between San Bernardino and Loma Linda. It's right. not a genetic difference. Just a highway away. Highway or, away. No, it's street away. Right on street the, away. across yes. the highway. Highway 10. So having said that, what are the elements that you usually, we kind of know this, but we want to hear your thought process about the elements that cities need to make the default health state in their cities? So we have 50 blue zone cities now. Austin and Orlando, Austin, Texas and Orlando, Florida just came on in the last uh, month and a half or so. So those are both cities of a million. So we went from cities of 20,000 cities of a million. And we've learned that it's got to be publicly endorsed and then privately funded. Because if you're relying on government to pay for it, people get all bent out of shape about having their freedoms limited. Because make no mistake about this, Blue Zone is about limiting your freedom to do unhealthy stuff. Mm. In the same way, you know, drug laws are there to limit our freedoms to smoke crack and to shoot up on heroin. I am a fan of, of limiting our freedoms to drink too much soda and to eat too much junk food and to nudge people into moving more. So once we get the funding in place, then my teams uh, have three squads. The first squad works with individuals. And over a five-year period, they have to get to 15% of the adult population to take a Blue Zone pledge. And we make it very simple for people. To become a Blue Zone ambassador, you bring checklists into your house and you optimize your house to move more, eat less, socialize more by shaping how you set up your kitchen and your living room and your, and your uh, bedroom to a certain extent. The second thing is you take a purpose workshop, which we provide and you volunteer. And the third thing is you join a MOI, which is an Okinawan idea of a committed social network gathered around a healthy activity. In our case, it's around eating plant-based potlucks or it's around walking. The second squad administers a Blue Zone certification for restaurants, schools, grocery stores, workplaces, and churches. And their job is to get 30 to 40% of all those places certified. And when you're certified, you've changed your designs and your policies to once again, nudge people in those places to move more, eat less, socialize more, and live out their purpose. And then the third squad, they work with city government. They're experts in built environment and food and tobacco. We have these um, menus, policy menus, best practices. And we have a good process where we help city government find consensus on what will work in their community. And then we identify, we make them identify uh, half a dozen policies for bettering the food or activity environment. And uh, then we help them get them implemented over the course of, a, of about a five-year period. So it's people, places, and policies. When we orchestrate that perfect storm, keep the pressure on for five years, we have never seen a failure. We have never seen a city where the BMI or the obesity rate does not drop, smoking drops, fruits and vegetable consumption goes up, physical activity goes up, and people's well-being goes up. And we always have Gallup measure that because it wouldn't be quite as believable if I just told people, and yeah, I measured my results and it's amazing. Yeah. 
So we get third-party metrics. It's a, absolutely. And some of the numbers we see oh, yeah. in Redondo Beach are bewildering. It I is. mean, the childhood obesity rate, uh, you want to talk about this? I mean, the drop was, for us, we were kind of incredulous about that. Uh, when we first saw it, we, we looked into it. Where's the confound? Where's the problem? Uh, the, the data, something must be wrong, but it's not. We see the obesity rates in adults, obesity rates in children, and those rates actually translate to diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, chronic diseases, and millions of dollars saved. Yes, in healthcare. In healthcare. I think in beach cities, I mean, the estimate is around $50 million, isn't it? Yes. So we were there from 2011 to 2016. And during that period, the beach cities, Redondo, Hermosa, and Manhattan Beach saw a 15% decline in BMI. So what does that mean? Not, not everybody's going to know what BMI is. Yeah. That means in a city of 125,000 people, there are 1,900 fewer obese people. And mm-hmm. on average, people drop weight. Smoking went down by about 26%. So we, one of our big scores there is we convince all three places to make smoking illegal in bars and restaurants and even outside on the Strand. And, you know, when you denormalize unhealthy activity like smoking, just incrementally, you see the smoking rates go down. And that occasions, you know, fewer lung cases of lung cancer, fewer heart attacks, lots of savings. And then the beach cities, even though it's in California, it's on the Pacific Ocean, people are playing volleyball. They had levels of stress and worry about the same as New Orleans after Katrina. Yes. And after five years of this, pro- of this project, they were in the middle of the pack. They went up about 50% up the list. So there's something that's working here. I don't think it's any one thing, but it's the combination of 70 or 80 little things. But this is the result of a community, the public sector, the private sector, and a, a boatload of volunteers and our team are maniacally focusing on improving the environment. And only then are we going to see a difference. It is delusion to think that we are going to legislate with uh, Obamacare or with whatever the Republicans are coming up with, some sort of a health care package that's going to get us out of the $3.7 trillion a year healthcare conundrum where that number goes up every year until we recognize the problem. And I think you guys will agree with me. It's not just our heart or obesity. It's our brains. It is. Until we shape our environment, take on the junk food, take on the fact we spend so much time in our cars and our our cities are congested with uh, traffic. Really look at our food system and optimize our food system, we're not going to see a change. No, we completely agree with you. I think that's that's one of the most important things. And um, with the increase in the number of brain diseases, that's our field. With the number of people we see with strokes and dementias, it already is overwhelming. It's going to get even more overwhelming and worse if we don't address it at the community level. You know, I'm a big fan of the Alzheimer's solution. And uh, you guys know the author? <laughs> kind of, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we like this other book in the background right here. Yeah, yeah we, we kind of like you this one. You can change the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Alzheimer's Solution. Buy that book. And I'll tell you why. It is such folly to spend all these 
hundreds of millions of dollars on the cure for Alzheimer's. They raise all this money and it's BS. What you guys have brought to light through your research, but Marshalline and other people's research, is that a much higher percentage of dementia and Alzheimer's is preventable. Mm -hmm. So instead of focusing on not getting dementia in the first place, we're spending countless hundreds of millions on this snake oil cure for, and by the way, it's, I call it a -a whack-a-mole cure because even if we found the cure for Alzheimer's, the same thing that's causing Alzheimer's is causing heart disease, it's causing cancer, it's causing diabetes. So you whack one down, you got three other ones whacking up. So, mm-hmm. you know, you guys sort of possess, I know you come at the problem through uh, brain health, but, but you're really addressing the, the five horsemen of chronic disease in this country. And where we actually completely agree with you, even at a meta level, it's uh, purpose. Without that higher purpose, when we talk about mind health and depression, anxiety, stress that you were talking about, without focusing on those kind of concepts, again, this monosyllabic approach is wrong. I mean, even with nutrition, even though our background is nutrition, just focusing on nutrition is not going to be enough. It has to be more, you know, as far as movement, as far as purpose, as far as sleep. It has All to be of comprehensive these and multi yeah, do, do your acronym again. I think it so overlaps with Blue Zone. It sure that, does. Yeah, absolutely. It's neuro. N stands for nutrition. E is for exercise, which you talk about movement. U is unwind or stress management. R is restorative sleep. Now, that's one thing that people usually don't look at when it comes to brain health. And O is optimizing cognitive and social activity in the context of having a purpose. And, okay. and, and, yeah. and that's very close to the... Pillars of Yeah, the power nine. Let me ask you this. I know it's your podcast and I'm hijacking it here first. (laughs) I'm really interested in take an average day. Walk me through from the time if you wanted to optimize your brain health. Yes. From the time I wake up in the morning to the next morning at that same time, how should the day unfold? Yeah, and use your acronym. So okay, I wake up, then what do I do? You wake up and the first thing you do is a walk, even before you eat, a brisk walk in the morning. What the brisk walk does, you know, is reset the circadian clock. It gives you the right amount of melatonin. And people make a mistake about these drugs. They think that just because you affected serotonin, you've actually affected depression or sleep and or if you've, no, it's not just reducing or increasing. It's the right amount in the right phase and we haven't gotten to that. We're actually doing chemotherapy with these drugs. When you affect serotonin, you're not just affecting a depression center. You're actually affecting all of the serotonin pretty much throughout the brain. Same thing with dopamine and melatonin. So how do you get the appropriate amount of melatonin? A beautiful, brisk walk in the morning in the light, early in the morning. That sets the clock for the whole day. Okay. That's more powerful than any drug you could take as far as getting awake as far as the, your sleep cycle the next day, uh, and oh, exercise. How long is my walk? I mean, the numbers, we're not dogmatic because the latest study said this and latest study said that, but it's obvious that anything 25 minutes or more is better. Okay. And I love brisk walks more than even look running because I really think that if people look at this brain, now this is a controversial topic that uh, we're going to get a lot. See what you got us into now, Dan? <laughs> So uh, I know we're, we're not even to breakfast yet. on a No, 20- <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this brain is gelatinous and it's in a bony structure. 
And the, what's keeping it there is liquid, I mean, water, basically, the, right. the viscosity of water. So when you run a lot, it moves. It's almost like micro traumas. But a brisk walk or biking or, you know, things like that are amazing. So that's your day. Then you start your day with a beautiful breakfast that's yeah. not sugar filled. You know, we take, we send these poor kids, young, especially young boys, hunter gatherers to a class with a sugar filled diet. They're, now they're supposed to sit in that classroom with 30 other kids and stay quiet. And if they're not... So what, what's, the, what's the optimal breakfast? Just a few foods. So eat like a king for breakfast, you know, like a prince for lunch and a pauper for dinner. So breakfast should be the biggest meal in the day and it's going to fuel you for the rest of the day. So high in good carbohydrates like oatmeal or oat groats or even, you know, 100% whole wheat bread with enough fiber and enough carbohydrates, add some nuts into it for pollen, monounsaturated fats and berries. So if you do those things, you've gotten all of your food groups in one and that, that'll that keep you fueled for the rest of the day. We talk about the importance of a whole food plant-based diet and you know it's important to incorporate as much of it for breakfast because that uh, is the beginning. How do you guys feel about coffee? So coffee is Ask not- Ask this one right here. Coffee is <laughs> <laughs> not bad. Coffee, it depends on where you are in your journey in health. If somebody has, say, for example, arrhythmias or heart disease or, or high blood pressure, they should be careful about that. But coffee in itself actually has potent anti-inflammatory and antioxidants. And there have been studies that have looked at the effect of coffee on brain health. And people who drink a cup or two of coffee have lower risk of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. We did a comprehensive review of nutrition and Parkinson's. And we saw that one thing that came in the radar was coffee again. Again, we're scientists, so we're not dogmatic if the data changes. You know, my favorite statement is to the best of our knowledge today, we're open to it and we'll see. But at this point, the data is strongly pointing to uh, coffee being somewhat protective for a particular population who doesn't have risk. Now, now the thing about the morning routine what you were talking about after breakfast, uh, oh, fasting, this whole concept of fasting has come up. Yeah. And we well, believe actually, definitely. Yeah. You know what you think about the concept of fasting, just coming from blue zones, you know, the latest information is intermittent fasting, not eating after a certain hour at night and then eating in the morning to fast for at least 12 hours a day is beneficial for health in general. Well, we certainly see that in the blue zones. It's, you know, people are for the most part too poor to, to snack. They, I mean, they weren't surrounded with snacks. So they finished their simple pauper like dinner and that was it till you know breakfast like a king the next day there were also the, the Icarians from Greece the blue zone there about half of the year they're fasting for religious purposes they're cutting mm -hmm. foods out certain foods or they're cutting all foods out and then in all blue zones there were periods of um, hunger of famine two or three years, the war, or some real economic hardship, kind of forced fasting. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the epigenetic impact of that was. And that, that may be explaining some of the extraordinary longevity. Right, absolutely. Definitely, we agree. Our take on fasting is the same. And we see that, and the population studies, like you said, during World War II also speak to that. When, when people have had periods where they've had, they've had to fast, forced into fasting, it seemed to have increased longevity and decreased chronic disease. Right. The rest of the day is moving naturally throughout the day. You know, uh, there's this popularity of standing desks. Uh, well, I don't know if standing desk is the answer, but moving throughout the day. And then if you're going to snack, it should be a high fiber snack and not so much sugary snacks. And then lunch and dinner earlier, and it's usually 
things that, that are whole food and plant-based. And there's plenty of, when you have a more complex plant-based diet, we're not into these plant-based diets where it says potato for a month or you know something like that. It has to be a cornucopia of plants and vegetables and beans and legumes because by doing so, you cover all the proteins properly without any of the negative, all the amino acids and vitamins and nutrients. And the data, latest data shows that not only is there not deficiency, but in fact, in the population that lives that way, they have excess of those things. I mean, appropriate amounts of those things. So we're not a big believer of vitamins unless you're deficient. In many ways, our approach, it was very non-sexy. A lot of people actually have written books about protocols and vitamin concoctions and the superfood and biohacking. There is no biohacking except for natural living and making the environment in your home and work friendly enough for living healthfully, moving naturally, eating wholefully, keeping your mind challenged around your purpose. That's what the whole thing is about. Okay, we've done a lot about it. This is about you, Dan. You, that was a good jujitsu move on you. <laughs> so no, but we're following your footsteps. Yes, blue zone jujitsu. No, we're following your footsteps and others, you know, Dr. Esselstyn and others. But we're actually staying a little bit more public health like you did, which is how do we apply this? How do you translate this? Right. And that's the critical thing. And I love the fact that this next book that's coming out. Yeah, no, I'm so excited about your cookbook. But I also wanted to add one thing that I absolutely love about the concept of blue zones. You know, wherever you go, whatever blue zone that you look at, you actually leave it healthier for decades and maybe even centuries. You know, when you came into beach cities, you know, the whole concept of creating bike lanes, you know, even if the Blue Zones is not actively involved anymore in that city, the bike lanes are still there. Yes. You know, the concept of healthy eating is still there. The farmer's market or the pledge that everybody has taken still exists. Those policies still exist. Hopefully nobody's going to change them. But that's beautiful because you shape the environment. Thank you. Yeah, in the beach cities, they, well, under our influence, adopted complete streets policies, which means that, you know, we don't come in and say, redesign all your streets this year because that will cost too much. But just about every street in America, on average, turns over once every seven years. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the asphalt crumbles and complete street says the next time you do a street, it has to be assessed for a bike lane a sidewalk, trees, narrower lanes, road diet, we call it. And the, the beach cities implemented that or adopted that policy. So now it, it'll become increasingly more walkable. And remember, that's part of Los Angeles, which isn't exactly known for its walkability oh and bikeability. Yeah. But the maniacal message I pound into my team is we're doing permanent or semi-permanent change to the environment. If you're spending money on messaging or T-shirts, I mean, we do a little bit of engagement, but we try to spend the vast majority, probably 85% of our budgets, permanent or semi-permanent change to the environment because we're going to be gone. You know, our team is there for five years. And after that, we want to leave behind a legacy of health. Yeah, Yeah, And you do. And you do. Tell us about your new book. I'm so excited about that. So I never aspired to write a cookbook. But I've realized, and I'm sure you guys have too, that even though health involves all these other domains, purpose and physical activity and keeping your brain sharp, et cetera, the runway for most people 
to pursue a new, a healthier life is through their mouth. Mm-hmm. People like to eat. We eat three times a day at least. There's whole channels. And I realized at a certain point that, number one, these blue zones, they're eating a certain way and it's delicious. And two, that way of eating is disappearing. So uh, National Geographic photographer David and I went back to all five blue zones. We got old people to cook for us because younger people are forgetting these ways of cooking. And uh, we captured 20 recipes in each of the five blue zones. And we learned that there are very few ingredients involved. They're cheap. They, you can cook them very quickly. And most important, I could tell you that fermented tofu or, or bitter melon are the healthiest foods in the world. But the most important longevity ingredient all over the world is taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If people don't like it, they ain't going to eat it. They're gonna, they'll eat it for a few weeks or months and they'll get sick of it. They'll stop eating. So the secret that Blue Zones teaches us is how to make food taste good how to make simple peasant ingredients taste good. So we gathered, we shot this book like a National Geographic article. I wrote the introductions that are written, you know, I write for National Geographic. So these are science heavy introductions that explain why these foods help you live a long time. And then gorgeous photography of the ingredients and the people eating it and the foods themselves. And then finally, a hundred recipes that will help you live to a hundred. (laughs) I cannot wait. That's wonderful. You're absolutely right. If it doesn't taste good, it's not going to be eaten. And people should not feel deprived. That's why diets fail, because it's just focusing on what you're not supposed to have instead of what you're supposed to have. In fact, when Aisha was doing a stroke fellowship at Columbia University in New York, she took cooking classes because we really thought that that's more important if we want to do public health service than, you know, passing aspirins. It becomes so cynical after a while. We always tell the story of when a person comes in with a stroke, $40,000, anywhere between $30,000 to $40,000 spent, and then they're sent home with a paralysis, which is not going to improve that much, with aspirin and a cholesterol-lowering medicine. And that's it. Whereas her study, and we were both involved, and she was the main author, showed in a California teacher study that a diet alone, a whole food plant-based, they call it Mediterranean, but what's most important in the Mediterranean is- Fine plants. Reduced stroke by 44%. Yeah, which is incredible. I mean, there's no medication that does that. What percentage of Americans, or what percentage of, of the current rate of Alzheimer's is avoidable by optimizing lifestyle? We say 90% or more. I mean, I, that's remember that. That's a conservative number. That's actually. a conservative number. I mean, when we said this three years ago, we didn't get any TV shows. We didn't, nobody came to us. And in fact, when we were invited to BBC, they blocked us saying, this is ridiculous. And we said, no, the data shows it. The population show it. My clinic in Loma Linda, you know, the whole anecdote of coconut oil was based on one person. We had a 3,000 person anecdote in the clinic where 50% of the population is vegetarian around there. Yet we had 19 people with a dementia with, uh, who are vegetarians and other data repeatedly. And then a few years ago, they said 30%, then 50%. So now, out of 300 vegetarian people, only 19 had dementia? Is no, that- out of 3,000 dementia patients, only 19 were vegetarians. Yeah, I see. Okay, so that says that the vegetarians are less likely to be demented. Correct, Definitely. correct. And, and of Definitely. course, we understand that there's more to it than that. It's the community aspect and everything else, but, but you can't avoid the food component. I mean, that's... Scientifically, it's the most important environmental risk factor. It is. 
It is. Yeah. So that's me. So if you were a pharmaceutical company and you went to the market with a pill that was going to eliminate 90% of dementia, you guys would be billionaires right now. Well, Lipitor. <laughs> yeah. The lipid lowering drug, we're not going to name it, which it actually did. doesn't even come close <laughs> to that. I mean, we're talking about and teens was a $20 billion drug before the patent ran out. Yeah. I mean, and now we are telling you that stroke can be reduced by 50% nearly by food alone. And dementia, if you take on all the factors, food and exercise and everything else, food studies have shown that food reduces it by 53%. So let's say 40%. That should be a multi-billion dollar drug. And what we're saying is you don't have to buy a protocol. You don't have to buy a pill or vitamins. Like some of these people check all these tests. And if you check enough people with tests, they'll find something abnormal and they say, oh, that's what was wrong. It's not. It's what you've been saying, Dan, which is lived environment. Make unhealthy choices more difficult. Make healthy choices more possible. That's the Blue Zone concept. Thank you. We summed it up. (laughs) Yes, yes. We sure did. No, we definitely think... Inspired by you guys, you don't even know this, or you might know it, but um, in Ikaria, this area that has almost no dementia... We followed a family as they moved from Icaria to Cleveland over about a generation. And that family, half a dozen people came, but now it's, they have like 30 people in the family. In the entire island of Icaria, this is 10,000 people. We found three mild cases of dementia. There might be a little bit more, but almost none. They eat a plant-based diet. They're moving all the time, strong sense of purpose, all these things. We couldn't find the dementia there. When they started moving to America, that family, they lived in a suburb. They had a SUV. They ate McDonald's, started eating the American diet. You know, the day we ate with them, they were eating a big uh, rump roast or something. They now, so these are people with, the same genes, the same values, the same sense of family as the people live on this island where people forget to die. They move to a standard American environment. They have the same rates of dementia, heart disease, and everything else as the rest of Americans. It's just so clear that it's our environment that is making us yeah. sick. Yeah. Absolutely. That's on the Today ho- Show, by the way, with Maria Shriver. We saw that. I think yes. we're, uh, we're hoping to go to Ikaria fairly soon. We have a couple of trips ahead of us, and Ikaria is one of them. We want to go to India and China and potentially start some research projects there because we're hearing that the, this affluence paradox is devastating the populations where dementia was you know, not known, although it wasn't studied yeah, well in the first place. that India place. I checked that out, lowest rates of dementia. That's... The researcher who did that will say it's a false conclusion. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they eat plant-based diet, but I think there was some under-reporting there going on there. I agree. Yeah. I th- that's why I said that the base is not well known, So, but still good to kind of study what the change is bringing anyway, on top of what, what was happening. So with that, I think we want to kind of say that the most important thing that we've learned in this journey from you and is that not that a lived environment is important, but you can actually achieve it. Uh, right. And you've done that. You've done it in now 50 cities, you said? And, we're, and it, we're achieving it. We're in 50 cities right now. Amazing. Correct. Amazing. Five years. It takes five years. So Correct. And we're hoping that we will see this flourish throughout the country and the world. Because I think the only way we can curtail this tsunami, let's just take Alzheimer's alone. Right. 
the cost is going to be nearly $2 trillion by 2050. Wow. That's unsurmountable. That's going to collapse the entire system altogether. And that's not even stroke and cancer and heart disease. And by delaying it by five years, we can actually cut the cost by half, just five years. So it's an incredible opportunity for all of us to talk more about prevention, about changing our environment and bringing all these healthy concepts that are described by the pillars of blue zones into our lives. And I'm so excited about your cookbook, you know, The Blue Zones Kitchen, 100 Recipes to Live to 100. It's coming out in December 3, and it's available. Yes. And it's available on Amazon for everyone to purchase. And I think it's a beautiful way of uh, people getting, you know, a glimpse of how people live in all these blue zones and bring it into their own kitchen and start living a healthier life. And we're going to ask everybody who's listening to us to buy a copy, pre-order it, because that's going to have a big effect on its release. Not that it's, it's already going to be a blockbuster anyway. So. I love I love the fact that you went to people's homes and you talked to elderly and, you know, you actually captured recipes that were handed down in, from yeah. generations to them. That's so unique. I, I sat on a stool tapping on the very computer I'm talking to you on right now. <laughs> and it's not just the ingredients, but it's how the ingredients are combined and how the ingredients are cooked. For example... You tell, talk to American about chickpeas, and maybe they sort of like hummus. But I witnessed a recipe where this woman took this beautiful chickpea base and then sprinkled it with onions and then baked it. So sort of high heat, which caramelized the onions. Oh. And it gave the, the – and then it put the whole thing in a phyllo dough, like sort of a cake yes. crust. And the result was very simple with rosemary in there. But the caramelized sweetness from the onion, the rosemary, the the pie dough around it, it was something you'd expect to see in a Michelin uh, restaurant. Yeah. But uh, it was something this woman whipped up in her little peasant kitchen in about an hour. So Amazing. Uh, Amazing. Putting some artistry into it. Well, I want everybody to kind of realize that that's what we're doing, actually. Make sure that people learn how to cook and, and make it simple and accessible. And you're doing it with this book and everything else you've done, and all the other books that you've written. So we're glad to be connected with you. It's not just from podcast to podcast, from gathering to gathering, but a common purpose that we share. We definitely think so, you and and everything you do. Uh, Hoping that we can work more on the cognitive side with you and everybody else who's interested. But we suggest everybody to buy the book, all the books. Definitely. And Uh thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I love you, Dan. Thank you. And I consider you brother and sister. So we love you. you Guys, nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, Dan. Thank Thank you so so much much for your time. Bye-bye. Bye.